Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. And while you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 7, let me say thank you for all of your thoughts and prayers and kind words and cards for our family. Heather gave birth to uh, our sixth child, a baby girl named Sephora, a few weeks ago. So she's over here. So um, we're just rejoicing uh, in the Lord. Um, we actually didn't even know what we were going to name her until about an hour or so after she was born. We hadn't settled on a name yet, but Sephora is her name. Thank you for your, your kind words. Um, if you're visiting, you're new. We have six children, three boys, and then three girls. So we are living the Brady Bunch. We're just looking for our Alice and haven't been able to convince anybody to move in and, and live and not get paid and put up with all of us, but that's us. Nehemiah chapter 7, we are actually going to read all 73 verses at the very beginning. Um, I know stranger things have happened in church before, haven't they? All 73 verses. So direct your attention to God's word, Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Raamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem, and Ba'anah. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pehath-Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zachai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bebai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Atur, namely Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Harif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anatoth, 128. The men of Beth Osmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Kephirah, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721. The sons of Sana'ah, 
3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rei, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephusesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Baslith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Ja'alah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth Hasabaim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmila, Telharsha, Carib, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns." And to think that we struggled to come up with a name for our sixth child. (laughs) Plenty of names to choose from. And you know what? I think we're done. I don't think we're going to have any more. And I was kind of hoping if Sapporo would have been a a boy, I was was still pulling for Darkon. So I am now officially relinquishing Darkon. Any of you pregnant ladies that have a boy, I'm giving up my rights. I would be honored if you name your child Darkon. You can have Darkon. Now, I know this passage might seem boring on the surface, but it's actually a very God-centered passage because every passage in the Bible is God-centered. And that's why our big idea today is this. When Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of your solar system, all the planets of your life come into proper 
orbit. Now, you're probably thinking there's no way that you got that big idea out of this text. I understand. It sounds impossible, but I think that's what we'll see here. Now, I tweaked that sentence, that big idea. It comes from John Piper's book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. I wish I had come up with it because I think it's brilliant. It's a beautiful picture, an image of what we see in Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7 is all about the people of God, the city of God. It's all about the church being radically God-centered with a single passion to see the fame of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, spreading to the nations. Now, you may not see that on your first reading, but I want to show you where I see it, and hopefully then you'll see why this list of Hebrew names is mentioned two times in the Bible. We already read these people in Ezra chapter 2, but God included it in his word again. He must want us to read it. Think about that. What we sometimes see as a seemingly boring list of names, God sees as something that we need to read two times in the same book. Remember, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. So in one book, we get this seemingly boring list of Hebrew names repeated twice. Think about that. God wants us to read this list of names two times in the same book. God wants us to know it, to think about about it, and to rejoice over what appears on the surface to be a boring text. Two times in one book, God gives us this list of 42,360 Israelite worshipers. Now, why? Why does God spill so much ink on all of these hard-to-pronounce names? Why does he spill all this ink on the same names? Is it to torture preachers who have to read each name aloud? No. In fact, most preachers won't even read these names during their sermon for fear of it taking up too much time in their sermon. Jesus includes this list of names for a second time because this chapter is radically God-centered. And the triune God that we worship here at Grace, Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God is radically God-centered. Here in this repeated list of names, we see the people of God, we see the city of God, we see the church, and they are a God-entranced people. They are focused on the merciful God who has redeemed them. They are focused on the merciful God that dwells in their midst in spite of their sin. That's why their worship is so extravagant. Their worship in verses 70 through 72 is extravagant. They spend a lot of dough, a lot of greenbacks, a lot of Benjamins, a lot of moolah, a lot of dinero there in verses 70 to 72 to make worship happen. They give so much money because they're entranced with the Lord who redeems and forgives them. And they worship so extravagantly because they are radically centered on Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, who has mercifully redeemed them. And anytime the church is radically God-centered, radically obsessed with Jesus, our Redeemer, radically obsessed with Jesus' performance for us and not our performance for him, then guess what? God is mightily glorified. 
Because God wants to be in the spotlight. Because the spotlight's supposed to be on Jesus and not on us. And when the spotlight is on Jesus and a church is fixated on Jesus, then God is mightily glorified. And that's why God gives us this list two times in the same book. Because he wants to be glorified in the lives of his people. Now look at verse 1 again. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And we saw several weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 15 that it took the nation 52 days to rebuild the city walls that had been destroyed some 70 plus years earlier. They did all of this under the leadership of Nehemiah. And now Nehemiah gives us a report at the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 7 in verse 1. He says, now when the wall had been built. Now Nehemiah is straightforward here. He's, he's a typical man. He says, we built the wall. But there's no details. Nehemiah is a guy. He's a man. He keeps this brief. It's what we men do. Now, you ladies would have described the vegetable trays that would have been served at lunch when the city walls were being destroyed. You ladies would have described how you got a great deal on those bulk cases of Gatorade at Costco. You would have mentioned here again that Shalom's daughters could swing a hammer. If you remember seeing Shalom's daughters in Nehemiah 3, they built the wall. You ladies would have given a detailed account of the rebuilding of the city walls, but not Nehemiah. He's a man. It's short and sweet here at the beginning of chapter 7, Nehemiah. It's like when the men come home from our elders' meetings. All of you elders' wives always ask your husband how the elder meeting was and what does he say after every elder meeting. It was good, made some decisions, prayed. Right? Even if Ken George, one of our elders, got mad at George Huff, one of our elders, and put him in a headlock because George burned the biscuits at men's breakfast, still every elder goes home. And when his wife asks how the meeting was, every elder responds, it was good, made some decisions, prayed. No mention of two elders fighting over burned biscuits. By the way, nobody burned biscuits, nobody got in a fight. Don't want to spread that rumor here. Well, why? Why do we do that? Because we're men. And Nehemiah is a man, and he responds like a man here at the beginning of chapter 7. And he just says, we built the wall. I appointed leaders, period. But even though verse 1 reads like a man is reporting it, even though it seems like it is lacking things, lacking details, it is still a very theological passage. It is full of theology. Why is that? How is this a theological passage? It's theological because of who Nehemiah appointed. Nehemiah appointed worship leaders, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites. After the city walls were completed, Nehemiah hired worship leaders. Now, why was this the first thing on his to-do list after the wall was complete? Because for Israel, the people of God, the city of God, for God's people in any era, worship was and is to be the top priority because we are worshipers. This is why we exist. We were created, we were made by God to worship God. We were created for God's glory. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed 
and Maine? Or as the first question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism points out, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's worship grace. Glorifying God and enjoying him. And that's why Nehemiah appoints the spiritual leaders who will lead the people in worship. It's top priority for Nehemiah. And it's our top priority here at Grace. As our mission statement says, and I will beat it into your head as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Every single person that comes through these doors Every single person that you meet in your neighborhood, in your workplace, you should realize this is why I exist, to ignite in them a passion through the gospel to glorify God, to enjoy him everywhere we go in everything that we do. Now why? Why was Nehemiah focused on worship and why are we focused on Christ-centered worship as a church? Because when Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of your solar system, all the planets of your life will come into proper orbit. Nehemiah knew that the very first thing Israel needed to do after the city walls were completed was to focus on worship. And then everything else would fall into place. And haven't you experienced this in your life? Haven't you ever been distracted and negligent in the spiritual disciplines? Well, of course you have. We all have. Well, what happens? What happens when worship and prayer and Bible study and fellowship and and worshiping with the people of God on the Sabbath here at church, what happens when that gets put, put on the back burner? What happens when you take your eyes off of Jesus? Everything gets jacked up in your life. All of the planets in your life get out of orbit. And Nehemiah knew that. And that's why he appoints worship leaders right after the city walls are completed. Nehemiah appointed worship leaders first in order to do what Paul Tripp said. We read this a few weeks ago. Nehemiah appointed worship leaders to give people back their awe of God. Here's what Paul Tripp says. Awe of God must dominate my ministry. Because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe of God. A human being not living with functional awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged. He is off the rails trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow. And he may not even know it. When awe of God is absent it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you are not living for God, the only other alternative is to live for yourself. So a church must turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. Nehemiah appointed worship leaders the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites in order to turn people back to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. And this is why you were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. 
to be so flabbergasted that he would save such a wretched sinner as you. You do know that you're a wretched sinner, don't you? But the good news of the gospel is that God loves wretched sinners and he makes his home among wretched sinners in the church. And he loves us that way because of his son, Jesus. You see, that ought to at least make you smile a little bit today. Even this past week, I reminded our oldest daughter, Tabitha, about this truth. I put her to bed and prayed for her. And I said, aren't you glad that Jesus loves you and he forgives you of all of your sins? I said, that ought to make you sleep well tonight. And she just got this huge grin on her face. That's worship. When you hear the good news of the gospel, and it makes you smile. Well, then in verse one, it says that Nehemiah appointed his brother Hanani and another man named Hananiah to be in charge over Jerusalem. Hananiah was the governor of the castle, but it's not his extraordinary leadership skills that land him this gig. Hananiah was a more faithful and more God-fearing man than anyone else. Now, how's that for a description of a politician? I don't think we even have categories like that for politicians anymore. Sadly, the new category is, and we've just all settled for it, is he's the lesser of two evils. But Hananiah was appointed governor of Jerusalem because he was a faithful and God-fearing man. As verse 2 says, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. I want to be a Hananiah. I want to be known as a faithful and God-fearing man. I hope I live in such a way that people will put it on my headstone. Benjamin Magnus, a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Now that would be awesome. And it would only be by the grace of God because I'm a wretch. Trust me. It would only be by God's grace that anybody would ever put that on my headstone above my grave. But I don't want to just be known as a faithful and God-fearing man. I want to be a faithful and God-fearing man. Don't you? How does that happen? How do we become a church full of faithful and God-fearing men and women? It only happens when God is the blazing sun at the center of the solar systems of our lives. It only happens when we keep our eyes on Jesus. It only happens when Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of the solar systems of our lives. Is he today? Is he the blazing sun at the center of your solar system? Do you love Jesus more than anything? Do your thoughts naturally drift toward him? Listen, I know we sin every day. You have heard me say numerous times that we don't love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we choose sin every single day. But you can be a sinner who sins every day and still love Jesus and say that he is your everything. In fact, that is the ordinary Christian life. 
The ordinary Christian life is that we sin every day, we fail every day, but our God is faithful. So we fail and we sin, but we keep on loving Jesus because he keeps on loving us. He is the center of the solar system of our lives because he loves us unconditionally. His love makes me want to be a faithful and God-fearing man. Well, Nehemiah not only appointed worship leaders who would direct the people of God to live joyful, sturdy lives in awe of Yahweh as the Lord, and he not only appointed Hanani and Hananiah, but he also appointed guards to guard the city gates of Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. So what's the deal here with the gates not being opened until the sun is hot? It says, Nehemiah said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. Why did Nehemiah say that the gates should not be opened until the sun is hot? I think it's better to translate the Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word odd. It means until. I think it's better to translate that, that word here in verse 3 with the rare usage, where sometimes you see it in the Old Testament, translated as during or while. In fact, That's how the exact same word is translated in the next sentence. So this is how verse 3 should read. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened while the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Now here's what Nehemiah is saying. The gates going into the city should be shut during the hottest part of the day. Now, why? Why is he asking them and telling them to shut the gates during the hottest part of the day? Because this is when the people would have been resting, when they would have taken their siesta, when they would have been sipping on Gatorade in the shade. Nehemiah is basically saying this, shut the gates going into the city when you are napping in the shade. It's too hot to be working, so grab a Gatorade and cool off in the shade, but close the gates to the city so that our enemies don't get in. Now, there is a famous historical record similar to this. In 410 BC, some Roman guards were taking a nap, and a man named Alaric attacked one of Rome's open city gates. So that's probably why, not, why Nehemiah says to shut the gates at lunchtime. Wisdom said, if y'all are all going to be napping after lunch, why leave the city gates open so that our enemies can enter? Tell the guards to lock the doors when they clock out for lunch for crying out loud. Now, I know on the surface, this doesn't seem like an exciting verse unless you get a kick out of like closing city gates or maybe you're one of those people who's OCD and you check the doors at night 4,000 times to make sure they're locked. Anybody like that? I'm one of those people. So unless that's you and you're OCD about checking the locked doors, this verse probably doesn't appeal to you, but it's very instructive for us. I know a verse telling guys to lock the doors doesn't necessarily get your devotional juices flowing. 
I know a verse that says, dude, lock the doors if you're going to take a nap, doesn't necessarily get you pumped up like Romans 8.1 or 1 John 1.9. I know you probably haven't put Nehemiah 7.3 on a coffee cup. I know most people don't get Nehemiah 7.3 tattooed on their shoulder, but maybe they should because it would serve as a great reminder. This verse, this verse that seems boring on the surface is teaching us that we need to protect our lives from the attacks, the opposition, the contamination, and compromise by the world. This verse is screaming at us. Are the gates to your life and family open to the influence of the world? What are you doing flirting with sin? Do you think you can play with fire and not get burned? Do you think you can get lazy in the Christian walk? Do you think you can leave the gate open to your life and not expect the enemy, Satan, to try and enter for crying out loud? And what does Paul tell the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4.27? Give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I haven't checked the original Greek language of Ephesians 4.27 in a while, but it wouldn't surprise me if it said, for crying out loud, Ephesians, don't give the devil any opportunity in your life. Understand this, Grace. We are at war. It's not time to relax. If you do, the enemy is ready. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So watch out. Close the gates in your lives where you sense the enemy is trying to get a foothold. Where are the areas that you think you may be giving the devil a foothold today, right now? Where are the areas of your life that you know I need to shut the gates? What's messing with your solar system? Is God at the center? Is Jesus the blazing center of the solar system of your life? What's interfering with your relationship with God today, right now? Remember, when Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of your solar system, all the planets of your life come into proper orbit. And that's exactly what we'll see next with Nehemiah in verses 4 through 5. Look at verses four and five. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. So verse four tells us that Jerusalem was large and no homes on the inside had been rebuilt yet. And there were only a few people actually living inside the city walls. Everybody else was camping outside the city walls. And then verse 5 tells us that Nehemiah gets passionate about something. He gets passionate about a church directory. Someone gets excited about the church directory. Now, here's how I see it. Nehemiah is probably in the shade one day, sipping on some Gatorade, eating on a veggie tray that the ladies bought, and he sees the city walls are complete, and he sees all the tents scattered around the city, and it looked like Woodstock. 
I mean, there, there are tons and tons of people, tons and tons of tents, and tons of barbecue grills, and frisbees flying in the air, and kids riding their scooters around, and Nehemiah begins to think about all of God's people. And then he starts to get passionate about putting together a church directory. He starts scouting out places where they could take pictures for the church directory, where they could all stand for the backdrop. And Nehemiah thinks to himself, we'll take church directory pictures by that cool weeping willow tree over there. Or maybe in front of the dung gate. Oh, no, it smells over there by the dung gate. That's where they put all the diapers from the nursery. I know we could get one of those cheesy photographer backdrops with a mountain and a lake and have everybody sit there and, and take their picture in these cheesy poses. That's what we'll do. You can blame Nehemiah for those 70s and 80s backdrops, you know, that you pull down. I, I remember my family, I remember there was one of us and I think it was like a Civil War background or something. I don't quite understand the connection there, but you can blame Nehemiah for those little, you know, which one do you want? Where did this passion for assembling the church directory come from? Verse five says that God put it into his heart. God put this desire into the heart of Nehemiah. God put the desire to enroll everyone for the directory in Nehemiah's heart. Now, I know that putting together a church directory doesn't seem exciting. Putting a church directory together may not sound exciting unless you personally like taking pictures and dealing with spreadsheets and typing in a bunch of names and addresses, but it's service for the kingdom of God and it brings him glory. And there's a lot of ministries like that here at Grace. There are a lot of ministries here that may not seem exciting. They may not seem exhilarating. Taking out the trash here at Grace after a, a potluck. Not very exciting. Not something to write a book about. But it still brings God just as much glory. Changing diapers in the nursery doesn't sound very exciting. But it brings God glory. You see, God is glorified in the very ordinary and mundane things that we do. Please, if you never get anything that I say, please get that. God is glorified through the very ordinary and mundane things that we do for his kingdom. God is glorified through the very ordinary, mundane things that we do for his kingdom. And that's exciting because most of us live some pretty ordinary and mundane lives, don't we? Our lives, our families, this church is prime real estate for the glory of God. And when your desire is God, and when your desire is the glory of God, then you'll serve wherever and whenever, no matter how mundane or ordinary it seems. And that's what Nehemiah does here by writing down this group of people. In fact, Nehemiah must have been digging around the church library because he found the old church directory from Ezra chapter 2. And Nehemiah opens it up, and it's almost been 90 years 
since these people took their pictures when they first came out of exile in Babylon. You see, the times are a change, and the times had indeed changed. So picture Nehemiah. He's sitting under a shade tree, drinking his Gatorade, eating his veggie tray, and he's got the church directory out, and he's laughing at the fashion and the hairstyles from this first wave of returnees that returned from exile in Babylon that we read about in Ezra 2. Imagine how the styles had changed over 90 years. Imagine how the styles changed from Ezra 2 all the way to Nehemiah chapter 7. And Nehemiah is looking at these hairstyles and these clothes, and he's thinking, that's not fashion forward, that's fashion faux pas. That's not something that you wear down the catwalk, that looks like something the cat dragged in. That's what happens when you look at an old church directory. We did this a couple of months ago here at Grace. Someone in the office got out some of the old directories and pictures. Let's just say that the staff had a good time looking at y'all. Let's just say that there were some good laughs. Let's just say that there was a lot of, look at so-and-so, wow. And some of y'all had hair back then. And some of y'all had some funky clothes. I mean, you think I dress bad? You should see what some of y'all wore back then. Somebody should have called the fashion police on some of you back then because some of y'all had some serious warrants out for your arrest, fashion speaking. Well, the staff had fun looking through those old church directories and that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's looking through the old directories from Ezra chapter two. But he takes it a step further and he actually writes down again all of these 42,360 people, he writes them down again. Why not keep the list? It's one book in Hebrew. Why does Nehemiah then take the church directory, the list of people out of Ezra 2, and then write them down again in Nehemiah 7? Why not add a footnote here in Nehemiah 7 that says, see Ezra 2 for the list of the 42,360 Israelites who returned in the first wave out of exile in Babylon? Why does he write the names down again? Why repeat the same names from Ezra 2 in the same book? There are two reasons. Because Nehemiah knows that people matter to God in the kingdom of God. And because Nehemiah knows that covenant runs in families. Nehemiah knew that God's people have a tendency to forget these two truths So let's look at each one so that we don't forget. First, Nehemiah knows that people matter to God in the kingdom of God. Nehemiah lists all of these people again. Some were priests, some Levites, some servants, some singers, some gatekeepers. But all were worshipers that mattered to God. And they had a part to play in being the people of God and being the city of God. All of these people were people that God had said to them in Leviticus 26, which was our call to worship today, I will be your God and you will be my people. All of those people had that pronouncement over their life. All of these people were sinners who belonged to a holy God. All of these people were sinners who were redeemed by a holy God. So people matter in a church's history. Names of people are tied to God's glory and how he worked in a particular time to build his church. These Israelites were reminders to Nehemiah 
and to Nehemiah and company that the people of God will continue in spite of all the opposition of the world. And that's a great reminder for us. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what decisions and what laws a government puts in place, we aren't going anywhere. You understand that, don't you? Because we belong to God, because we are his people, and he is our God, and he dwells among us because of Jesus, we will survive anything that happens in this world. Oh, they may behead us. They may put us in jail like they've done for thousands of years, but the church has gone nowhere. We are still here. They may behead us, but they'll never behead the church because Christ is the head of the church. We will survive whatever laws our government puts in place because we are God's people. Now that ought to make you exhale as you watch the news and as you read the newspaper. Maybe it might even make you want to stand up and sing the doxology really loud. The people of God matter to God. So we ain't going anywhere. Here's how I worded it in our most recent church directory. Church directories in some ways are like those seemingly boring genealogies scattered throughout the Bible that we joyously read through. You do joyously read through them, don't you? Maybe you do it joylessly, haven't we all? On the surface, those passages that list hard-to-pronounce name after hard-to-pronounce name don't seem that exciting. So-and-so begets so-and-so, so what? We could approach church directories the same way. Or we could approach them as we should approach those seemingly boring list of names. This is a collection of the people of God who are saved by the grace of God. Church directories then become more evidence of God's grace in saving people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And that's what we're about here at Grace. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. So the church directory that you hold in your hand is yet another collection of the people of God saved by the grace of God. And that makes taking those pictures worth it. The people in Ezra chapter 2 and the people in Nehemiah chapter 7 and the people in the history of Grace Baptist Church are to be remembered not merely for sentiment's sake, not merely to reminisce about the good old days, but to be a continual reminder that God will build his church and he does it through his people serving in the present. So go find an old church directory and look at the pictures and and laugh at the hairstyles and, and let your heart get warm and fuzzy for the old days and be thankful. But then trust God that he is going to continue gospel centered ministry here among us now. As the nation of Israel read Nehemiah 7 throughout the years after it was written, surely it sparked faith in them that God would still work for his glory and for their good. Maybe that surprises you that I say that surely it sparked faith in them as they read this chapter, that God would still work for their good and for his glory. Surely Nehemiah 7 comforted God's people while they awaited Jesus the Messiah. 
Surely they return to this passage time and time again. Because how does Matthew's gospel start? With a seemingly boring genealogy just like this one. A seemingly boring list of people to intro the birth of Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. See, only God thinks like that. But the first gospel be, hmm, let's see, how should we start it? How about a genealogy? That'll intro the birth of my son. I love that God, our God thinks outside the box. And part of the reason Nehemiah recorded this list of 42,360 people for a second time in the same book was to remind Israel of her identity. They were to be the people of God, the city of God, working for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. So Nehemiah includes it to remind God's people that people matter to God in the kingdom of God. But the second reason that Nehemiah includes it is because Nehemiah knows that covenant runs in families. All the people listed in this chapter remind us that discipleship runs and happens in families. This is a reminder that we all need to hear. Moms and dads, the burden is on you to teach your children about Jesus. And when you do, the next generation hears the gospel and they will go and do the same. Now imagine, you could be the catalyst by God's grace for starting a chain reaction in your family's history that would have generations after you serving the Lord, all because you started discipling your own children. Imagine, are you loving Jesus? Sharing that with your family? reading scripture to them, praying for them, catechizing them. Listen, your kids are smart. They know right now whether or not Jesus is the center of your solar system. They know right now whether or not Jesus is the most important person in your world. Do you talk about God as a family? Do you pray together as a family? Do you read scripture together as a family? That won't happen in our homes or in this church if we aren't totally in love with Jesus. But what might God do by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church and in our families and in this city if we were passionate about the gospel? What might God do through our very mundane and ordinary lives if we were fixated on Jesus and we were constantly rehearsing the gospel? You see, it's fun to dream. It's fun to imagine. It's fun to dream and imagine what God might do through our very mundane and ordinary lives if we are living for him and for his kingdom. It's fun to serve a sovereign God who works not necessarily through the wise and the famous and the gifted, but through his very ordinary people who live mundane lives centered on his son and on his kingdom. Listen, God doesn't have an all-star team. At best, we're the JV team, and we're like the bottom of the barrel of the JV team. But that's what I love about our God. He said, I'll take you, and I'll use you by my power. You gotta love a God who thinks like that. You gotta love that we serve a God who thinks like that. You gotta love a God who says, focus on my son Jesus 
and live your ordinary, mundane life for my glory among my people in the church, and I will advance my kingdom through all of you by the power of my spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the triune God that we serve. And he uses weak, frail people like you and me. That makes me want to smile. That makes me want to stand up and sing as loud as I can. And that's exactly what we're going to do after we pray. Remember, when Jesus is the blazing sun at the center of your solar system, all the planets of your life come into proper orbit. Let's turn our eyes to him now. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. The fact that we are not mesmerized and spellbound by him has nothing to do with who he is. It has everything to do with how sinful we are. As we sang earlier this morning, make my heart believe. Make my heart believe that Jesus is better. God, open our eyes to see your son, that he would be the blazing sun at the center of the solar system of our life. Do that because you will be glorified. Help us because we're weak, because we're frail, because we're fragile. Help your people to extend your kingdom in this city and around the world for our joy and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.